As we begin the message this morning, I want you to think about times in your life when you have denied the Lord Jesus in one way or the other. I know it won't be pleasant because we don't like to remember our failures, and there is a sense in which we should forget about them. Philippians 3, Paul says, I forget those things which are behind, and I'm focusing on the race there in front of me. But there's also some value in remembering from the standpoint that it can be a warning to us regarding our weakness and vulnerability. So think for just a moment about times when you have denied the Lord Jesus. If you're like me, sadly, you won't have to think very hard or very long. There are plenty. And remember, there are a number of ways that we deny Him. The only way isn't coming out and saying, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, or I don't believe in Jesus. We deny the Lord when our actions are contradictory to our claims. For example, we claim to be a Christian, but we tell off-color stories or dirty jokes to our friends. We claim to be a Christian, but we watch inappropriate movies with friends or acquaintances. We claim to be a Christian, but we swear or cuss when things go wrong, when we lose our temper, when we smash our thumb with the hammer. We claim to be a Christian, but We don't speak up for the Lord in situations where we ought to say something. We claim to be a Christian, but we are ashamed to admit it to others. We claim to be a Christian, but we laugh at filthy stories that other people tell just because we don't want to be seen as weird. We claim to be a Christian, but we don't honor our word in business or financial transactions. We claim to be a Christian, but we are willing to engage in unethical business situations or practices. All of these are ways that we deny the Lord, and there are many other examples that could be mentioned. We deny the Lord when we are unwilling to stand for Him in the way we ought to stand. We deny the Lord when we are embarrassed or ashamed to stand for him. Paul told Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now why would Paul say that? Sounds like a strange statement for Paul to be saying to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Why say that? He said that to Timothy because Timothy, like all of us, had a tendency to be ashamed to stand for the Lord in certain situations when it was difficult or embarrassing. I was 15 years old when I surrendered my life to Christ, when the Lord Jesus gripped my life. I was a sophomore in high school, and I was on the football team. Being popular was a big deal to me, like it is to most teenagers. But when I gave my life to Christ, I wanted to take a stand for Him. However, even though I wanted to take a stand for Him, that didn't mean it was easy or going to be easy. 
I battled with myself about the possibility of being unpopular or being seen as weird or being teased by the other students. But I knew I had to take a stand. So I decided that I would begin carrying my Bible to school. I can still remember the first day I carried my Bible to school. It was a lot of years ago, but it is imprinted right on the forefront of my memory. I went to the bus stop that morning carrying my notebook, some textbooks, and my Bible. At first, I had my Bible stacked between my notebook and my textbooks because I didn't want it to be obvious that I was carrying a Bible. I could just hear some kid saying to me in front of all the other kids at the bus stop, what is that? Why are you carrying a Bible? But as I stood there for a while, I realized that I was being ashamed of something of which I shouldn't be ashamed. I shouldn't have been ashamed to be seen carrying a copy of God's Word. So I finally got up the nerve to take my Bible out of the stack and place it on the top of my books. I wasn't trying to be arrogant or pushy, but neither did I want to hide it. I remember another event that happened about three years after that. I was in college at this time. I was going to be meeting up with someone I had been really close to as a child, as a young person, but I had not seen in years. In fact, when I had last seen him, I was not committed to Christ, but he had heard about the change in my life. He was a couple years older, and I had always really looked up to him. There was a sense in which I was dreading seeing him again because I didn't know what he was going to say about the fact that I was now a Christian. When he stepped out of his truck, and again, a lot of years ago, but I remember it so vividly, I had taken a train from downtown Chicago out to the suburbs. He was going to pick me up at the train station in his truck. When he stepped out of his truck and came up to me, the very first thing he said to me was, What happened to you? At that moment, I was faced with a decision. I could be ashamed of my relationship with Christ, or I could unashamedly tell him what had happened in my life. By God's grace, I did the latter. Now, I wish I could tell you that Every situation in which I was confronted with the same kind of choice resulted in taking the right kind of stand. But the fact is that such has not been the case at all. And I'm sure the same thing is true of you. We've all been in situations where we have not stood up for the Lord in the way we should have responded. Maybe that's why we can all relate to the Apostle Peter. He was a man who truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He he was no pretender. He wasn't Judas. He, He was no hypocrite. He truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But he didn't always stand for the Lord in the way he should have. Sadly, one of the things Peter is best known for is the occasion when he denied the Lord three times and did so vehemently. 
We come to that story this morning in our continuing series through Mark's Gospel. So if you're not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 14. And please follow along as I read verses 66 through 72. We were sort of set up for this story a little bit earlier in Mark 14, when Mark, as any good author does, drops a little hint, hoping you will remember it, so that when he comes back to it later, it sort of set the stage. Earlier in Mark 14... Verse 54, Mark told us that as Jesus was arrested and led away, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And that's all Mark said. Just sort of left it there. Now he comes back to it at the end of the chapter in the text we'll consider this morning. Verse 66, now as Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech, your accent shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Just like the other three gospel writers, Mark devotes a large portion of his gospel record to the events surrounding the death of the Lord Jesus. That's the section of the gospel we are in as we conclude this morning this 14th chapter. Back in verse 46, we have Mark's statement regarding the arrest of Jesus. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas, accompanied by a large mob, stepped forward And carried out the betrayal. And once he did, verse 46 says, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. It's stated so simply. It's stated so succinctly that we could very easily be unaware of what took place in that one verse. History indicates that this event was usually brutal. Jim Bishop says, and I quote, The proper manner taught by the Academy of Soldiery in Rome was to take the victim by the right wrist, twist his arm behind him so that his knuckles touched between his shoulder blades, and at the same time jam the heel down on his right instep. This was the beginning of the pain Jesus would feel this day, end quote. Add to this the fact that Jesus had not yet slept. So fatigue 
was probably overwhelming him. Remember, the disciples had fallen asleep in the garden, but not Jesus. So Jesus was arrested and bound. But he wasn't bound by ropes and fetters. He was bound by his loving obedience to the Father. And he was bound by his love for you and me. From that point on, Jesus was no longer free, humanly speaking. He was the property of the state. And they did to him as they wished, which involved railroading him through the most biased, inequitable, illegal set of trials in the history of jurisprudence. No man was ever more guiltless or faultless. No series of trials was ever more unfair. As I mentioned in the last message, Jesus actually went through six forged or fraudulent trials. The first three were Jewish religious trials. The final three were Roman civil trials. The accusation in the, in the religious trials was blasphemy. The accusation in the civil trials was insurrection. The reason Jesus ended up going through the Roman civil trials is because the Jews wanted him crucified. They didn't merely want him gone. They didn't merely want him to die. They wanted him humiliated. So they wanted him crucified, but they didn't have the authority to crucify him. So after they rushed Jesus through their three unfair trials, they shipped him to Pilate to get his stamp of approval so Jesus would be crucified. To remind you of how unfair this was, Jewish law stated that an arrest for a capital crime must be made in broad daylight, but the mob made this arrest here in verse 46 in the wee hours of the morning sometime after midnight. After Jesus was arrested, he was first taken to Annas, who was the former high priest. Mark doesn't say anything about that trial. Instead, Mark begins his description of the mock trials by telling about Jesus being taken to Caiaphas. That is recorded for us in verses 53 through 65, which we looked at in the last message. While Jesus was undergoing his trials, Peter was also undergoing a trial or testing of sorts as he was confronted with the issue of taking a stand for his Lord. You will remember that Peter had confidently boasted that he would never stumble because of Jesus, and Jesus responded by saying to Peter that he would deny him three times before the night was even over. Mark records the fulfillment of that prediction here in these verses before us. And by the way, remember, as I've said several times throughout this series in Mark, remember that Peter was the source behind Mark's gospel. You could rightly call this the gospel according to Peter. Peter was the source behind Mark's gospel. Therefore, it would be accurate to say that it was Peter himself who recorded this story in this gospel. What an indication of humility on Peter's part 
to make sure this was placed in Mark's gospel. So we pick it up in verse 66, where Mark tells us, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. We know from John's gospel that John was also with Peter on this occasion. They both had gained access to the courtyard of the high priest's house. And there was a servant girl who watched the door or watched the gate, and she was the one who addressed Peter. Verse 67, And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. This was Peter's first denial. Think about this scene for a moment. Peter was brave enough to enter the courtyard. So he must have prepared himself with courage. Only Peter and John followed this far. The rest of the disciples had fled, and they were nowhere to be seen. Peter and John followed this far, so Peter went farther than a lot of the other disciples. But this incident involving the servant girl took him by surprise. Isn't that the way it is so often in life? I know it is in my life. I prepare for the big tests the big temptations that I know are coming, and by God's grace, I can usually handle them. But it's so easy to fail when something hits you unexpectedly and takes you by surprise. That's what happened to Peter. He boasted in the upper room when he should have listened with humility. He slept in the garden when he should have prayed for strength. And now he is completely caught by surprise. And he lied. He not only lied, he denied his Lord. This is often the way it works in life. The actions that come out in our behavior are often the result of what we have done or have not done in the past. What I mean is, it is so easy for us to focus on a certain action in our lives but we fail to see it in connection with what we have done or haven't done in the past that has led us to the action in the present. This is the sowing and reaping principle in Scripture. Scripture tells us what you sow, you reap. Now, that can be good or bad. If you, show, if you sow the right kind of things in your life, then they can become a part of our character and they can come out in our actions. But if we sow the wrong kinds of things in life, they become a part of our character and they come out in our actions. We can see that very clearly with Peter, even in the short-term nature of this story. He sowed the wrong things by boasting when he should have listened with humility and by sleeping when he should have been praying. The result was that he failed miserably. Now understand something. The reaping of what we sow doesn't always come about this quickly. For Peter, this was just in a matter of hours. But sometimes the reaping is far removed from the sowing, and we fail to make the connection between the two. 
As a pastor, sadly, I see this all the time. People will come to talk with you about areas of their lives that are falling apart and they don't realize that all the choices they've made in the past have culminated in the present disaster. Sometimes the choices in the past were wrong choices, but many times it's merely a matter of failing to make the right choices. For example, the person who just coasts along in life without pursuing the Lord passionately often wonders why his life ends up falling apart later. He wasn't necessarily doing a bunch of wrong things or bad things in the past, but neither was he sowing a lot of good things. In Peter's case, his downfall was the result of the presence of something negative and the absence of something positive. The presence of something negative was his boasting, and the absence of something positive was his neglect of prayer. The end result was tragic. He blatantly lied and denied his Lord. Now we dare not, we dare not cluck our tongues at Peter. Because you and I have done the same thing. Maybe not in the exact same way, but we have done the same thing. But it's not over for Peter. Verse 69 tells us, And the servant girl saw him again, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. It's interesting to me that both of these first two occasions involved a servant girl. And I can just hear Peter recounting this story to Mark as Mark writes his gospel. And Peter is, it's almost as if he's saying, Mark, it was a servant girl. It was a servant girl. Peter wasn't being confronted by Roman soldiers. He wasn't being confronted by Jewish officials. He was being addressed by a servant girl. Yet in his fear and panic... He succumbed to the temptation to lie and deny his Lord. Beloved, let this be a graphic reminder to us. When we are fearful, that is one of the times we are most vulnerable to lie or to do something else that is wrong. And when I say fearful, I'm not just referring to the kind of fear that involves fright or terror. I'm also talking about what the Bible refers to as the fear of man. When we are afraid that we will disappoint someone or not be approved by someone, we are often tempted to lie or do something else that is wrong. When we are afraid that we won't have someone's approval or we will hear them mocking or even just making a joke about it, you know, laughing at us, we're often tempted to lie or do something else that is wrong. That's why Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. That is true in so many different ways. The fear of man brings a snare. We should, we should all have that phrase memorized. The fear of man brings a snare. That's what happened to Peter. Verse 70 tells us, 
But he denied it again. This is Peter's second denial. You see, Peter felt trapped. Think about it. He'd already denied Jesus once. How could he change his story? That would raise a great deal of suspicion. Hold it. You said you didn't know him. Now you're saying you're one of his? Peter felt trapped, but he still should have stopped the downward slide. Here's another important lesson for us, beloved. Once we have made a wrong decision or a wrong choice, it is far too easy to assume that it's too late to stop things at that point. Oh, how many times I've seen this through the years. People will make a wrong choice or a stupid choice or a sinful choice, and then they compound it by following it with more wrong choices. Don't do that, beloved. Don't believe the lie that it's too late to do what is right. Stop the downward spiral and don't let it go until it hits rock bottom. Peter probably felt trapped by his first denial, but he should have stepped up to the plate at this point to do the right thing. Don't you find yourself with some mixed emotions as you read this story? What I mean is, on the one hand, it's, it's so grievous to, to, to see Peter doing this and to hear him, hear him saying this. But on the other hand, none of us who are objective at all could have any sense of condemnation knowing our own hearts. So on the one hand, you almost feel sorry for Peter because you understand, you, you know what it's like. But on the other hand, you realize it's, it's inexcusable. Verse 70 continues, And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech, your accent shows us. Mark says a little later, Luke tells us with more definition that this was about an hour later when this final denial took place. Now think about that. Peter had a whole hour to get it together. A whole hour to think about what he had done twice already. A whole hour to pull things together. But he's confronted the thir a third time. Surely you're one of them. You're, you're a Galilean. It's obvious in your speech. Peter was from Galilee up north, and the northerners had an accent. Today, we typically think of those of us who are from the south having an accent, but in the first century, the northerners had an accent. And this event was taking place down in the south, in Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Israel. Peter's accent made it clear to those who were standing around that he was a Galilean, which is what Jesus was considered also. Now this really made Peter nervous because, after all, Jesus was being tried by a rogue court that was about to put him to death. Peter realized that the same thing could happen to him. The Gospel of John adds an interesting comment at this point. John 18, 26 tells us that one of these who spoke to Peter had been in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had been arrested and when Peter had cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Not only that, it says in John that this person was related to Malchus, 
So Peter was really caught now. Here was an eyewitness of the incident in the garden. Not only an eyewitness, a relative. So he had Peter pegged. He knew this was Peter. So in order to convince them that he didn't belong to Jesus, Peter began to curse and swear. Verse 71 states that, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now when it says Peter began to curse and swear, please understand, it is not talking about him using profanity. That's the way far too many Christians read this. It's not saying he began to use four-letter words, cuss words. No, it means he began to call down curses on himself if he were not telling the truth. And it means he was swearing oaths that he was telling the truth. He pronounced a curse of death on himself at God's hand if, God, if his words were untrue. He basically said this, May God kill me and damn me if I'm not speaking the truth. I don't know this man. Needless to say, it was a bold and foolish curse to make. It was the mercy of God that Peter wasn't struck down in his foolishness. And it's the same mercy that God extends to you and me when we often deserve otherwise. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't give us what we deserve? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't even give us what we ask for in life often? Peter was basically asking God to kill him if he weren't telling the truth, but God in his mercy did no such thing. Instead, he brought Peter to repentance through a cock crowing. Verse 72 says, A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's exactly what Jesus had said would happen back in chapter 14, verse 30. Exactly. And the story closes with this word, And when he thought about it, he wept. I don't think we can even begin to grasp how much this grieved Peter. As I said earlier, he was a man who truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was no pretender. He was no hypocrite. He, he wasn't a Judas Iscariot. He truly loved the Lord. But he didn't always stand for the Lord in the way he should have. But one thing you can say about Peter he failed immensely on this occasion. But the depth of his failure was matched by the depth of his repentance. He didn't excuse his actions. He didn't justify his actions. He didn't minimize his actions. It's easy for us to do any one of those three when we sin and when we fail and when we fall. Peter didn't do that. He accepted full responsibility. And that's why this hit him so hard. And when he thought about it, he wept. Matthew describes it just a little bit differently. Not in any way a contradiction, but Peter in his humility 
tell, told Mark, basically, tell him I wept. But here's what Matthew says. Matthew tells us that he wept bitterly. He wept profoundly. Luke 22 adds another touch to this story. So turn from Mark 14 over to Luke chapter 22. We'll read just a few verses of Luke's description of this same this same event. Luke chapter 22, way down near the end, verse beginning in verse 60. This is the same story. Jesus is on trial. Peter is denying. In verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, here's the, here's the comment, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We don't know exactly what the configuration was, but this is happening in the high priest's house. Peter's on trial. I mean, Jesus is on trial. Peter's out in the courtyard. But on this occasion, at this point, where they were each respectively, eye contact could be made. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And just as Matthew describes it, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. That broke Peter's heart. I read these words this morning, not with a condescending attitude toward Peter, but frankly, with fear in my heart. And beloved, I hope you feel the same way. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You and I are not beyond the possibility of doing this same thing. In fact, most of us have already done this same kind of thing in one way or another in life, maybe more than once. I appreciate Barclay's words at this point, and I quote, he says, It was the real Peter who protested his loyalty in the upper room. It was the real Peter who drew his lonely sword in the moonlight of the garden. It was the real Peter who followed Jesus because he could not leave his Lord alone. It was not the real Peter who cracked beneath the tension and who denied his Lord. And that is just what Jesus could see. The forgiving love of Jesus is so great that he sees our real personality, not in our faithlessness, but in our loyalty not in our defeat by sin, but in our reaching after goodness even when we are defeated, end quote. John MacArthur said it this way in a sim- along the same lines, the true Peter is seen not in his denial, but in his repentance. This reminds us of Paul's words in Romans 7, what I don't want to do, I end up doing. How many times have we had to, had to say the same thing? What I don't want to do, I end up doing. When we do, are we like Peter? What I mean is, do we take full responsibility for our sin? Do we take full responsibility for our choices? And do we 
repent? Or do we excuse? Or justify? Or minimize? Peter is a great example to us in the way he repented and turned back to the Lord to be restored. If you need to do that, you will find the Lord waiting and willing to restore you. Some of you may be at the same point in your life that Peter was at in Mark chapter 14. You are a follower of the Lord Jesus, a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus, but you are hanging back. And maybe you're hanging around the wrong places. As a result, you are denying your Lord or you're right on the verge of denying Him. How about it, college student? Is that where you're at? How about it, teenager? Are you denying the Lord by your words or your actions? How about it, mom, dad? Are you standing for the Lord the way you ought to be standing, or are you denying Him in some way? If you are, or if you have, then this morning, in a similar fashion to Luke 22, you could, you could almost say this, Jesus is looking right at you, trying to get your eyes to meet His. I pray your response will be the same as Peter's. Let's bow as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the few minutes we have remaining, take a moment to reflect upon your life, reflect upon this passage, and reflect upon how our lives intersect with this passage. The things we can learn from this passage. The unfortunate commonalities we have with Peter's experience at times. And as you think about your life, maybe you're now, as a result of this text, you're very aware of times where you have denied the Lord in some way or another. If that's the case, again, I urge you to remember just as Jesus did with Peter, he will restore. He will forgive. Don't compound the problem by continuing to make bad choices. Father, as we think about this story, we, we, we can so easily relate. Every one of us here, if, if we're just honest, if we're if we're willing to be objective. So we don't, we don't read these words with any sense of condescension or condemnation, but actually just with apprehension, realizing our own vulnerability, how we could, we could so easily just be caught off guard by surprise this very afternoon, tomorrow morning, this week, caught off guard by something and end up doing something very similar to what Peter did on this occasion. So we want to do what Peter did not do, and that is 
when your son, the Lord Jesus, urged him to be praying in the garden, he didn't. So we want to right now, Father. We want to pray for strength. We want to, to pray for the strength to stand for the Lord Jesus this day, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week. Not only in the big things that we prepare ourselves for, the things that we see coming, but in those events of life where we just don't even see it coming. And all of a sudden we're caught by surprise and we're confronted with a decision. Oh, how easy it is to make the wrong decision. So, Father, we acknowledge, we willingly acknowledge our weakness, our vulnerability, and pray for your grace and strength to stand strong. Thank you for Peter's example of repentance. Thank you for the tremendous encouragement to see our Lord's willingness to forgive and restore. May each and every one of us take from this passage, this story, what you would have us take with us. And in closing this morning, Father, we want to pray for anyone here in our midst who doesn't know Christ, who's not a follower, who isn't a, a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus. Father, surely in a, in a crowd this size, there are those present who are in that category. And we pray your Holy Spirit would bring conviction that your Holy Spirit would do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary, to bring that person to repentance for maybe the very first time to be brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be pleased to use something that has been said, something that's been sung, read, prayed, something here in our service. May you be pleased to use that by the work of your Spirit to draw men and women to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.